0: morning again. This is a big weekend in the life of our church family as it's college graduation weekend for many universities, including for Trinity right here down the road, also for plenty of other schools. So we want to actually take a minute right now to honor those who have completed a degree program this semester and graduated. So I think we've got some pictures up here on the screen. Uh, Ethan Ashworth from Trinity down the road here. Yes, Ethan Michaela as well from Grand Canyon. And Janelle Fenton from the University of Miami. We'll be seeing her this summer. Emma Firestone, Wachita Baptists. Sam Hardy from Trinity as well. The MDIF. Kenny Kim, Rochester Tech, and Una Kim from New York University. Yes. Josh Loomis, who we saw earlier up here from Trinity. Matthew Swift from Trinity as well, and those are our graduates. Let's uh, give them a hand one more time here. We're giving God a hand, too, for bringing these men and women through their courses of study. Please do congratulate them when you see them, we look forward to continuing to pray for them as they turn the page to the next chapter. Uh, Whether you're joining us online or here in person, we're glad you're here, let's Go before the Lord together in prayer. Lord, you're big and you love us. That makes us glad. Now let the words that I say and let the thoughts that we all think be pleasing in your sight. For Jesus' sake, amen. Almost 20 years ago now, I spent a few weeks with an American Christian who had gone to Jerusalem to study the Hebrew Bible under a world-renowned professor at one of the top Jewish seminaries, if that makes sense. Here's how he described his first day of class at this seminary. The professor, who's one of those rabbis who has virtually memorized the Hebrew Bible word for word from Genesis to Malachi, points to an individual in the class and says, recite the Bible. The student's looking around and then eventually just starts, well, in the beginning, God, stop. professor stops him professor then moves to the next student recite the bible same thing in the beginning god stop a couple more times same thing and once he's had the whole class's full attention through this exercise the professor rabbi begins the course by commenting in the beginning god if your starting point isn't that there isn't much point in you being here The lesson that Professor was conveying is that the whole rest of the Bible hangs on God being the starting point and source of everything. That's what makes faith worthwhile. If it doesn't all come back to God as the uncaused cause of everything else, religious reflection is a waste of time. In theological terms, to talk about God in this way is to talk about his self existence and self sufficiency. Uh, Those are fancy words of the Latin-derived term. If we want to give you more fancy, was aseity, ase, meaning uh, from himself. The bottom line of what the Bible claims from its first sentence is that God has life in himself and doesn't ever need anything. God has life in himself and doesn't ever need anything. It starts with him. Everything does. And that is a category buster when we first encounter it. Because from the youngest ages, we've looked around at this world, and all we've ever observed is that everything comes from something. Fruit comes from trees, trees come from seeds, on and on. Everything comes from something. There's only one exception. One uncaused cause. Only one who can claim self-existence. And maybe nowhere is God's self-existence and self-sufficiency more clearly seen than in Exodus chapter 3. Would you turn there with me if you see there's a Bible in the chair in front of you or if you want to flip open a Bible app. Exodus chapter 3, second book of the Bible toward the beginning. We only have a couple weeks left in our sermon series on the attributes of God. Some of the attributes that we've studied are what's called communicable, meaning that God intends for us to imitate them. We're supposed to love like He loves. We're supposed to be wise with His wisdom, patient with His patience, gracious as He is gracious, etc. Then there's other attributes we've studied since January that are incommunicable, meaning we can't imitate them, and as such, they set God apart from us. Today's exploration of God's self-existence and self-sufficiency, those are two of the ways God is categorically different from us. Mother's Day is a reminder that from our very first moments, each of us here needed our moms to survive. By the way, that's why the the age of viability conversation is confusing to many of us. The child born at full term isn't any more able to feed itself or clean itself post birth than it was at week 12 of pregnancy, right? On our own, none of us could have survived even those early days in the world. Even now, we are relying moment by moment on God for our next breath as we're reminded each time a loved one is unexpectedly taken from this life. We humans are dependent creatures. For God, it's completely the opposite. God hasn't ever needed anyone for life or for nourishment or for anything. So as we look to Exodus 3, quick note on the background here. This is that time when Israel is stuck in slavery in Egypt. Moses is 80 years old. He's been outcast from his people and living in obscurity for the last 40 of those years. And now, out of nowhere, God is going to call Moses to act as deliverer of his people. We'll see that Moses is stunned, as some of us have been stunned by God calling us to walk a path we'd never thought we'd be called to walk. But one of the major things that God wants to get across to Moses in this critical moment of calling is that God is self-existent and self-sufficient. So we're going to read the first 15 verses of this chapter in two parts. First, we'll see God revealed in a sign, and then we'll see God revealed in a name. Sign and then name. Both the sign and the name point to his self-existence and self-sufficiency. So first, God revealed in a sign. Follow along with me as I read verses one through six. says, meanwhile, Moses was shepherding the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian. He led the flock to the far side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. Then the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire within a bush. As Moses looked, he saw that the bush was on fire but was not consumed. So Moses thought, I must go over and look at this remarkable sight. Why isn't the bush burning up? When the Lord saw that he had gone over to look, God called out to him from the bush, Moses, Moses. Here I am, he answered. Do not come closer, he said. Remove the sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. Then he continued, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look. At God. We can see on display here some of the attributes we've already studied in this sermon series. Right. So what kind of shepherd leads his sheep to the far side of the desert? Unless we readers are supposed to understand that the shepherd himself is being led like a sheep to the place where God wants to meet him. This is God's sovereignty in action. And then in the remove the sandals from your feet. In verse 5, this is a display of God's holiness that sets him apart from everything else. We see God's eternality in the listing of ancestors here. His no ability and his willingness to meet with Moses and meet with him he does in a bush. It's a sign meant to carry some sort of significance. So what's special about the bush? The bush was on fire but was not consumed, verse 2. So let's think it through. Normal bushes, when set on fire, eventually burn out. Why? Because a bush on fire is fueled by its wood and leaves, right? So when the wood and leaves run out, the fire runs out. So catch this. If this bush isn't burning out, its fuel source can't be its own wood and leaves, This is a fire fueled by the only energy source that is never depleted, namely God himself. There may be many other things that Moses is meant to understand from this burning bush, but at least one lesson seems to be that God is intending to demonstrate to Moses in the form of this sign that God is himself an endless source of unquenchable energy. God never needs recharging because his energy supplies are never dwindling. And it's not just that God's life and energy are never depleted, it's that they could never be depleted. It's like J.I. Packer said it, God doesn't have it in him to go out of existence. We necessarily age and die because it's in our nature to do that. God necessarily continues forever unchanged because it's in his eternal nature to do that. Question though, why at this particular moment when Moses at age 80 is about to be called to serve as the deliverer of God's people, why did Moses need to see this burning bush now? Why is this the time at which Moses needed this visual lesson on God's self-existence and self-sufficiency? We can maybe think of a few possible reasons. Uh, Here's one. And I I can't be sure that this is a temptation that Moses experienced. But I wonder, if Moses had entered this next chapter of leadership over God's people without a deeply rooted sense of God's aseity. I wonder if Moses would have been crushed under the heavy burden of feeling like, I'm the one who's been called to prop God up, right? Like God's people are in a bad spot. God's reputation is now on the line. If I don't come through and fulfill my calling as leader and deliverer, the God of our people is going to become a footnote in the history books. And it will all be my fault. Do you ever feel that way? Here's what it might look like for us. Like, man, God's gotten himself in a tough spot in our day. He could really use an assist from us to help rehabilitate his public image. American Christians, we talk that way all the time, don't we? churches latch on to celebrities the moment they make a profession of faith in Christ. Because, right? as we think, well, celebrities give God credibility. Popular voices make Him relevant to people who would otherwise find Him irrelevant. Right? If only we had a few more influencers on Team Jesus. A few more public personalities willing to defend Christianity. Then, God could get back to that respected position He used to hold. But A.W. Tozier pointed out a generation or two ago, Whether celebrities are endorsing God or not, God cannot be elevated. Any motion in his direction is elevation for the creature. Any move away from him is descent. As no one can promote him, so no one can degrade him. It's written that he upholds all things by the word of his power. How can he be raised or supported by the things he upholds? See, the burning bush is a sign to Moses. Yes, Moses, I'm calling you, but not because I need you. Whatever energy you're about to bring to this, Moses, it will add nothing to the endless supply I already have. And in fact, any energy you have for this task came from me in the first place. See, it's not really that God doesn't need Moses for anything. It's more that God couldn't need Moses for anything. So the worship song that came out a few years ago wasn't quite right when it said, the things of earth stand next to him like a candle to the sun. The candle-sun analogy, maybe you've heard it, it, implies that there's a quantitative difference between us and God. Like, he's a big light that'll take many years to burn out. We are a much lesser light that only takes minutes to burn out. But that's not it at all, is it? The difference between us and God is, in fact, qualitative. It's a category difference. We're of a completely different nature. We will pass away like that candle, but God will necessarily exist forever, even after the sun has been extinguished. And what's more, our light isn't independent of his light, like a candle is independent from the sun. Any light we have is derived from his light because he's the only source of all light. And this is a significant point of divergence between our faith and other religions that have been practiced all over the world from the time of Moses till now. The people of Egypt, for example, the ones who were enslaving Moses' relatives at the time of this story, they thought that they were keeping their gods going by their sacrifices. 1,500 years later, the Greeks and Romans, they thought they were keeping their gods going with their sacrifices. Today's tribal religions, they imagine they're keeping their gods going with their sacrifices. Better perform the rituals or our gods might lack the strength or willingness to act on our behalf. But when the Apostle Paul visits one such city that held those beliefs, he feels an, a burden to explain that, no, 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 God doesn't need anything. This is Acts 17, right? You remember, Paul says to the people of Athens, hey, it's silly to imagine that God needs anything from us. He's the one who's given us life and breath and everything else. We never give anything to God that he didn't first give to us. We're so utterly dependent on him that we are relying on him for this next breath. <gasps> He's never relied on us or needed us for anything. And Moses is going to need to cling to that comforting truth as seen in the burning bush, as he hears the words that he's about to hear next in the story. Whatever massive task God is about to call Moses to, God doesn't need Moses to accomplish it. God's not relying on Moses in the sense that a failure on Moses' part could, could, could put God at a risk of failure. No, no, the bush's sticks and leaves... Are not needed by God. He's perfectly capable of sustaining the fire without them. And neither is Moses needed by God. God is perfectly capable of rescuing his people without this man. So, this sign for Moses is huge. How, How many layers of that does Moses understand in this moment in front of the bush? Probably not many. His head is spinning, surely. But in the years that followed, leading up to the time when he wrote these words down, You better believe that he reflected back on this burning bush and saw significance there that he didn't catch at first. But the sign of a burning bush isn't all Moses gets from God in terms of self-revelation. God also shares with Moses his name, his name. Let's look at verses 7 through 15. Uh, Follow along with me. Then the Lord said, I have observed the misery of my people in Egypt, And I have heard them crying out because of their oppressors. I know about their sufferings, and I have come down to rescue them from the power of the Egyptians. I have come down to rescue them from the power of the Egyptians and bring them from that land to a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey, the territory of the Canaanites, Hethites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. So because the Israelites' cry for help has come to me, and I have also seen the way the Egyptians are oppressing them, therefore, go. I am sending you to Pharaoh so that you may lead my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. But Moses asked God, Who am I? That I should go to Pharaoh and that I should bring the Israelites out of Egypt. He answered, I will certainly be with you. And this will be the sign to you that I am the one who sent you. When you bring the people out of Egypt, you will worship God at this mountain. And Moses asked God, If I go to the Israelites and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, And they ask me, What's his name? What should I tell them? God replied to Moses, Moses, I am who I am. This is what you're to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say this to the Israelites, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever. This is how I am to be remembered in every generation. So in short, God says, I'm sending you. Moses answers, who am I? God says, I'll go with you. Moses asks, well, who are you? And the conversation about God's name then becomes pivotal. You know, I guess it makes sense, but apparently it's a big deal for a biologist to get to name a newly discovered species. A bunch of new species have been named after musicians lately, by the way. Uh, Just a couple examples for fun. Uh, This is... uh, radiohead Radioheadi, named after Radiohead. This is Scaptia Beyoncei, named after Beyonce. This is Pink Pinkfloydi, <laughs> named after Pink Floyd. It's a shrimp that kills with sound. Um, but as a biologist, when you name a new species, as these biologists have been getting creative with lately. Uh, there's a sense in which you're staking a claim to having mastered that creature in a way, right? Like, in other words, you're saying that what, what was once mysterious is no longer so mysterious. It fits in this classification. It can be expected to match these criteria. It's likely to behave predictably in these ways, right? Because it's this creature with this name. We know it. Got that one. To name it is to master it, on to master the next one now. And I wonder if that's part of why we humans have always wanted to know God's name. Like generations before Moses, Jacob wanted to know God's name. What's God respond? He says, why do you ask my name? And a few generations after this story in Exodus, Manoah has an encounter with God and asks, hey, what's your name? To which he gets the response, why do you ask my name considering how wonderful my name is? Here in this passage, Moses wants to know God's name too. And we don't want to be too hard on Moses. Maybe it's just innocent curiosity on the part of someone whose head is spinning at this moment and wanting to make sure that in the context of a very polytheistic world, he knows exactly which God is speaking to him. Fair enough, right? But whether or not this factors into Moses' desire to know God's name, I can't help but reflect that this request, What's your name, God? God happens to match all too well our universal desire to master God. To be able to file him away as one of many objects of study that we've examined and found a way to classify in such a way that makes the object manageable. True? Like maybe you have a family member whose journey with God has been like that. Or maybe that's been your journey with God. You pride yourself on being an open-minded person. So just like you've read up on Stoic philosophy and Sufi mysticism, you've done your research on the God of the Bible. And you're now conversant on what you like about what he's, how he's depicted here in these pages, what you don't like about it. You feel like you've kind of mastered him. You, you, you understand him. You've classified him. Right? But God, he's, he's not always eager to cooperate with our quest to put him in a box. Check out how God responds to Moses. Hey, what if they ask me, what's his name? What should I tell them? God replied to Moses, hey, I am who I am. I am who I am. Why does God respond this way? In part, I am who I am is God saying, hey, Moses, you can't classify me. I won't hold still under your microscope. In fact, if anyone's going to be looking in the microscope, it's me, right? So despite the fact that God shares so many encouraging words with Moses in these 15 verses, this couldn't have felt to Moses like a lighthearted encounter, right? Moments after God's like, hey, don't come any closer because you really don't belong here. And by the way, take your shoes off because otherwise you'll desecrate the ground. Moses finds out he's talking to I am who I am, the one who refuses to submit to analysis. Can you see why that's troubling? Like, if God won't answer to us or be mastered by us, that means we're accountable to him. A.W. Tozer says it like this. I keep quoting him today. His chapters on self-existence, self-sufficiency are just so good. He says, the philosopher and the scientist will admit that there's much they do not know. But, that's quite another thing from admitting that there's something which they can never know. Which indeed they have no technique for discovering. To admit that there is one that lies beyond us, who exists outside all our categories, who will not be dismissed with a name, who will not appear before the bar of our reason nor submit to our curious inquiries, this requires a great deal of humility, more than most of us possess. So, we save face by thinking God down to our level, or at least down to where we can manage him. Yet, how he eludes us. Aren't you guilty of thinking God down to your level? I know I am. Two ways in which I've caught myself doing it just recently. I've, I've thought God down to where I could manage him, so to speak, through idolization of my theological tribe. In other words, a particular system of theological thought helps me feel like, okay, now I've got a handle on who God is. This makes sense to me. Right to think of him this way. So I, I close myself off then to experiencing God outside the box of that theological tradition. Like I like where I've got God contained here. Right? He's manageable. I've also thought God down to where I can manage him through imagining God on one side of particular contemporary issues. As though certainly God sees my side as the good guy's and the other side is the bad guys he must right i don't want to entertain the possibility that he might have a rebuke for my side too like that he might not be on either side it's more convenient to imagine him fitting neatly within my existing categories he's manageable there right yet here he is identifying himself to moses as i am The name Yahweh, which is translated the Lord in most of our English Bibles in all caps. See in verse 15. It's from that same root as the word I am. God says I am. I'm I'm self-existence. I'm the source of all existence. And implied in this name is not only do I not need anything, I could not need anything. Nobody has ever given me anything that I didn't give them first. I am. And in context, remember Moses is hearing this name in conjunction with a calling to be the deliverer of a people group stuck in slavery under maybe the most powerful human ruler in the whole world at the time. God's like, hey, I'm sending you to go toe-to-toe with Pharaoh. And it's in that context in which God's saying, but remember, I am. And I never caught this before this week, but look again at verse 12. Moses has just asked a question that probably should be understood as appropriately humble. The previous chapter, God was talking about how he would be the one to deliver his people. Now he's saying Moses will deliver his people. So Moses is like, wait, who am I to do this? I'm not you, God. You said you were going to do it. To which God answers with an intentionally ambiguous play on words. Literally what God says here in verse 12, uh, the word certain, certainly is added for emphasis because of the word order. But literally it's uh, the word I am with you. Like the, na- the same wording as the name, I am, from verse 15, with you. That's how God answers him. Um, I am, I will be, there's no difference in Hebrew between the two. So it's the exact same wording as God gives in verse 14. I am, then with you. So it can be understood in two different ways, both of which are true, right? In one sense, God is saying, hey, you're not going to do it. Yo, you're going to do it, Moses. I'll be with you as you do it. But in another sense, he's saying, you're not going to do it, Moses. I am will do it. And I'll be with you as I'm doing it. So We could spend hours, I think, reflecting fruitfully on the implications of this passage for our significance or lack thereof in God's plan. On one hand... A passage like this one that highlights God's self-existence and self-sufficiency make it abundantly clear that God doesn't need us. He's going to do what he's going to do with or without us. And in a sense, that's freeing. Like, phew, I can't blow it. It's good news. But in another sense, I don't know. Moses probably didn't feel this way, but for me, I honestly, I kind of admit that I feel like it's a little bit of a bummer. Like, you're telling me that if I blow it, God's plan won't even experience the slightest momentary hiccup because he never was counting on me in the first place? Like, man, I really am insignificant. I don't know if anybody else feels that way. Like, think about how little we are in light of God's aseity. It's like Tozier pointed out. He said, that if everyone on earth abandoned God and became atheist tomorrow... Sure, God would be grieved, but it wouldn't lessen him even a fraction. His status wouldn't even take the smallest hit. He wouldn't be any less fulfilled than he was today because he is who he is. The bush was never burning on the fuel of human praise or creaturely acknowledgement of his greatness. It was burning on the endless supply of his own nature. And in that sense, we couldn't be less important. But on the other hand, Some over the centuries have recognized that God's aseity doesn't make us utterly insignificant in every sense. Actually, you could argue that we are more significant by virtue of the fact that even though God didn't need us, he delighted in us so much that he chose to work through us anyway. And not as employees to whom he delegates tasks that he doesn't have time or energy to do himself. No, no as vessels or as body parts through whom he sends his energy to accomplish what he could have accomplished without us, but chooses to accomplish with us and through us. Merely because he wanted to do it this way. Because doing it through us is what was going to bring him joy. See, what ultimately gives our human lives meaning is that the God who didn't need us nevertheless created us and determined that we would be meaningful to him. And since he's God, our meaningfulness to him is really all that makes anything meaningful. True? So our big idea today is this. Though God doesn't need us, let's delight in the fact that he has chosen to work through us. Though God doesn't need us, let's delight in the fact that he has chosen to work through us. The God depicted in Exodus 3 stands in stark contrast to the God that I've often imagined. Tozer summarized particularly well my faulty imagination of God. This is a wrong idea, but he summarizes my wrong idea. He said, a busy, eager, somewhat frustrated father hurrying about seeking help to carry out his benevolent plan to bring peace and salvation to the world. When I read that phrasing, I had to put down the book for a few minutes. Like, ouch, you nailed me. Right, like That's exactly how I imagined God, without realizing that's how I was imagining God. But that couldn't be a further cry from the God of the burning bush. That God bears no resemblance to, I am who I am. Friend, God didn't create us because of any lack he was experiencing. He didn't save us because of any help he needed. In the beginning, God, and this God needed nothing. Yet, he determined that you and I were going to be meaningful to him. He freely chose to set his affection on you and me, not because he was needy for our companionship or lacking self-confidence until we gave him our praise. I remember D.A. Carson explaining, it's not like Thursday rolls around each week and God's like, I could really use a pick-me-up. I can't wait till Sunday comes and those people down there take out their guitars and begin to sing to me. Right? Like, our praise adds nothing to him. He didn't create us to fulfill any need, yet. He determined for his own good purposes to make you and you and you as ones that he would sing over with delight. And that's a love that you and I have never known in any earthly relationship. Even the earthly loves that we consider the most selfless are loves for our kids as parents if we're honest, we're often still, at least a little bit, looking to get something from that relationship, some sort of validation or fulfillment that we need. How many of us have said our family would have felt incomplete without you, son or daughter? And so in a sense, we're looking to that kid to complete a lack for us, and we love them in part because of a need that they fill. God's love for us is categorically other than that, and categorically higher than that By virtue of the fact that the relationship he has with us is meeting no need for him, zero, and could never meet any need for him. And all that makes the cross even more beautiful. Because if there exists this God who loves us despite not needing the relationship at all, you'd think that once we rejected him as we did, and staked our claim to our own self-existence, playing pretend as if we were the self-sufficient ones, you'd think that he'd then move along, turn his freely given affections elsewhere. But no. It would be an understandable story if a god died for his people because otherwise he would have been unfulfilled. Still an amazing story, but understandable. He did the calculus and didn't want to be lacking something he needed once he got to the last page of the story who wants to sulk in discontentment forever, so he died for his people. It's another thing altogether to read the story of a God who would not be lacking anything on the last page, even if he never had any relationships with humans at all. Yet, he still died for us. He paid the debt that we owed so that we could be set free and reunited with him. What incredible love is that? If you've never experienced that sort of love, God wants you to experience it this morning. He's been pursuing you, not because you're particularly lovable, not because he'd be lonely without you, but just because he's determined that you're his treasured one. And he's chosen to set his affectionate delight on you. So why, why wouldn't it be this morning that you cry out to him in the words of that song we sang earlier, Lord, I need you. And surrender your life to his loving design. If on the other hand you have acknowledged God as the only self-existent and self-sufficient one. And you've decisively abandoned your own quest for self-sufficiency. Let's go about the work that he's called us to this week. With a deep sense that we are simultaneously. So very insignificant. Because God's plan would go on without us. And yet so astronomically significant. Significant. Because God in his good purpose has determined to work out his plan through us. Right. In our workplaces, in our homes, in our schools, in our neighborhoods. Let's simultaneously carry that freedom because we can't blow it. And that sense of significance because we have access to the u- universe's greatest power while we're engaged in the universe's most important work. Amen. Amen. Let's pray. God, it would be a very different thing this morning if we were coming before you praying to a God who needed something from us. The stress we'd be under, the the pressure we'd feel to get it right, the the strain that if we don't perform appropriately, then you might not have enough to give to us. God, thank you that that's not the case. We praise you, that you're self-existent, self-sufficient. That you have everything you need in yourself. That you never needed anything from us. And so when we come to you, we come to a God who knows nothing about scarcity, but only abundance. Every good gift that we bring to you this morning, this week, first came from you. And so we want to gladly give it back to you. With the sort of freedom that can only come from knowing that we can't blow it. That your plan is going to move forward with or without us. And yet, we're made so significant. By virtue of the fact that you set your affectionate love on us in your freedom. Help us to treasure that this week more than we've ever treasured it before. In Jesus' name, amen.